This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, And you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you, would you come and teach us? Would you come and give us a more clear understanding of your gospel? Would you change us? Would you take my stubborn heart and make it soft? Would you slow me down? Would you convince us tonight that you love to love us? In your name we pray, amen. We're in the book of Mark together. It's our second uh, sermon in this series, and as is our habit here at City Church, we just kind of walk through books of the Bible together. And uh, the first book that we looked through as a congregation, being a young church plant, we looked through the book of Colossians, which is a book that's, it's a church, it's a church plant living out the historic realities of the gospel. And so what is beginning to be our tradition as far as we can see into the future, uh, we're going to now look at the book of Mark and look at that, the actual historic events of the gospel. Next, probably a year from now, we'll unpack an Old Testament book and look at how those historic prophecies point to uh, what we now know to, to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which is Christ himself. So we pick Mark out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because, um, because it's the shortest. It's 16, probably 15 and a half chapters, really, compared to like the 28 chapters of Matthew. It's short, but it's rather shocking. I really, I love reading Mark. I love how urgent it is. I love how shocking it is. I love, um, one commentator says that it has the air of breathlessness. I, I love that, the air, A-I-R, of breathlessness. I think that's pretty profound. As we unpack it, I think we'll begin to see more and more of that. Uh, for example, on the shocking part, just looking at our text tonight, uh, verse 9, we find out uh, in verses 1 through 8 that John the Baptist is saying, uh, there's going to be one who comes after me who is going to be the son of God. He's going to be divine. And he is going to come. And he's going to forgive sinners. And he's going to give his Holy Spirit to his children. And this King of kings and Lord of lords that's going to put on skin is Jesus Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first shock is verse 9 when we find out that Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee. If you're familiar with your Bible in John chapter 1, Nathaniel's like, he finds out that the Messiah is from, Nazareth, or is from Nazareth in Galilee, and he says, can anything good possibly come from that place? And he's not necessarily talking about Nazareth being a vile place. He's just talking about Nazareth being unknown. This sort of points to God's character that he likes to come and work through unknown, ashamed, unnoticeable places. The first shock is that the king of kings who's going to save the world comes from an unknown place. The next shock is the next part of verse 9, 9b, is that, that Jesus goes up to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is baptizing people and telling them to repent and confess their sins 
And he's baptizing them saying, you will be cleansed and forgiven from one outside of you. And he's going to come after me and he's going to cleanse you and save you. And so sinner upon sinner upon sinner is going to John and being baptized. And Jesus comes and says, baptize me. The one who has never sinned, the one who is spotless, perfect, and beautiful wants to be baptized. We'll talk more about that later, but that is another shock. And then another shock comes in verse 12, that after Jesus has been baptized, which is going to show his incredible humility, and after God the Father himself rips open heaven and declares on his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and after the Holy Spirit comes into him and around him, instead of a parade, he's forced into the wild wilderness to go into battle with Satan. It's a shocking book. We're going to see that over and over and over. It's a short book. These two episodes, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus, is 16 verses in the book of Matthew. Mark gives us five short but action-packed verses. So Mark has this economy of style where he's able to communicate unbelievable amounts of things in very precise words. We saw this last week when he was saying that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem were coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. That would be like saying all of Florida and all of Orlando were coming to do something because Jerusalem is inside of Judea. But what he was communicating is all those who lived in the country land and in his book, what is going to symbolize paganism, they were coming to be converted and, and, Those who regulate the temple in Jerusalem, those religious professionals were coming to be baptized. So even in what seems rather strange to us, he is packing in an awful lot. So it's shocking and it's short. The best example, though, of his ability to communicate something in a short amount of time and space is how verses 9 through 13 are a recapitulation or a retelling or a re-summarizing of the entire Genesis 1 through 3 creation account. In five verses, he is able to summarize and retell the recreation of all things. Uh, I read about this in commentaries all week, and I was was like, okay, I see that. That's kind of cool. Okay, I see that. That's neat. And then someone gave our daughter Maddie for her seventh birthday a Bible with a cool clasp on it and cool colors, and it's just got nice little pictures in it and stuff. And so we've got, instead of using one of the other Bibles or one of the storybooks about the Bible, we've got this new Bible to read. And I was like, Maddie, where do you think we ought to start? She goes, let's just start at the beginning. That's brilliant. Because Genesis 1 through 3, I, I will tell you now, if you want to go anywhere and read something over and over and over to understand all of life, go to Genesis 1 through 3. It's the entire story of man and redemption. Get to verse 4, and men start knowing women, and brothers start killing each other. It's a little harder to explain, but verses, chapters 1 through 3 are, are a lot of fun. If you're new to the Bible, this is what Genesis 1 through 3 tells. Genesis chapter 1 is the story of a triune God creating everything. I'm going to unpack the word Trinity here in a minute. But it's the story of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit creating everything. It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It talks about being, the Spirit being there brooding over the water. And it says that God creates with the word of his mouth or the voice of his mouth. And in John chapter one, we find out that the word of God is Jesus. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter one, creating everything that is by the spoken word. And this is what's going on. Jesus, we find out in Colossians, is the one actually creating things. 
And six times in six days, it says that Jesus created something through the power of the Spirit, and the Father says, that's good. That's good. I really like that. That's what I was hoping for. That has hit the mark. That is beautiful. Six times the benediction of the Father comes on the work of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter two is the retelling of Adam and Eve. They're made on the sixth day. And you have this rhythm going where the son creates by the power of the spirit and the father says, that's good. And then you have this rhythm over and over and over. And then chapter two is the retelling of how Adam and Eve were made. And it says that Adam was created first and God gave him something to do and something to not do. I want you to have dominion over everything that is and I want you to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil something to do and something to not do. And Adam was brought all these different animals who had male and female, and they were multiplying quickly. And Adam did not have a helper suitable for him. And so the Bible says for the first time, a malediction comes. Benediction means good word. This is good. Malediction means bad word in Latin. This is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And so God creates a helper suitable for Adam. And the expectation is is that Adam and Eve will do what they were told, both positively and negatively. And that at some point, the heavenly voice of God would rip open what is the barrier between God and man. And he would say, these are my beloved children in whom I'm well pleased. But instead, chapter three of Genesis, enter Satan. Satan comes as a serpent. Satan is the biblical, Satan or the devil is the biblical adversary of God. He is personal and he is supernatural. And he is against God and his kingdom. And Satan enters the picture and he tempts Adam and Eve with a temptation of self-gratification. Doesn't that apple look fantastic? And self-promotion, don't you want to know everything that God knows? And self-serving, do you really want to be under the authority of God? And instead of Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve resisting the temptation, they gave in. And God shows up not with a benediction, but a curse. He curses the serpent and promises that one day the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And in crushing the serpent's head, the seed of the woman will have his heel bit or injured. Pointing, of course, to Christ. He says to Adam and Eve, our relationship is now broken, severed, shattered. And now because you don't have my benediction, you don't have my blessing, you don't have my approval, everything else begins to turn. They begin to turn on themselves, feeling guilt and shame. They begin to turn on one another, blaming each other for what's wrong and being suspicious of each other. And nature turns on them. What was once an easy, pliable ground becomes hard and thorny. And what was once the kingdom becomes the wild kingdom. Animals begin to rip one another apart and seek after even the life of Adam and Eve. And there's one very interesting way where Genesis 3 ends that I missed until reading it again with my daughter May this week. I've probably read it a hundred times and written paper after paper upon it. That at the very end, there's an angel that's told to guard the tree of life, the tree where if Adam and Eve were to eat the fruit, they would have eternal 
life. And he says, we better guard that tree with an angel so that they do not partake of the tree of life and live forever as sinful creatures. Let's go back to Mark chapter one and let's think through what we just learned. And this is what I'm trying to articulate is that Mark is saying that everything that was lost in Adam and Eve has been gained back for us in Christ. That everything that was lost in the fall has been given back to us in the Redeemer, in the Recreator, in the Savior. First, all three members of the Trinity are present. Do you see this? Jesus comes to get baptized. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him and the voice of, uh, assumed voice of the Father in heaven comes down. You're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. If you're new to the church and the Trinity is mysterious to you, welcome. If you're in the church and you think you have it figured out, you're wrong. The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity that we teach is this idea that, that there is one God and yet there are three persons in the Godhead. That God is no more one than he is three and he's no more three than he is one. It's not that there are three gods who have decided to always work together on something. Because Deuteronomy 6 very clearly says that there's only one Lord. The Bible over and over and over speaks to God as a singular being. And at the same time, our passage is a great example of how God is shown not in three modes at three different times where he can take on the fatherly face or the son face or the spirit face, but there are actually three persons in the Godhead. Mysterious? Absolutely. Biblical? You betcha. So what we see in Mark chapter 1, 9 through 13, is we see all three members of the Trinity present. Secondly, there is another Adam present. There is another man who is going to go and have his marching orders given to him by the Father and fight against Satan the tempter and win for him and his posterity all the things that were lost in Adam. Third, third parallel, Satan is present to tempt. Not only that, do you look, look with me in verse 13. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him and they're like, what's up with that wild animal? And I'll, I'll tell you, I'm pretty sure what I'm about to tell you is accurate, but really good commentators will disagree on this. And some of them are saying, well, he's out with the wild animals and he's showing that he has authority over them like he's gonna show in his miracles when he tells the sea to quit raging and et cetera, et cetera. He has control over nature now. Uh, some are saying, no, this is to a Roman audience, and he is telling them in the same way that you're being thrown to wild animals in the persecution of Nero, Christ himself was in the midst of wild animals. And the Holy Spirit ministered to him while he was there, and the Holy Spirit will minister to you while you're there as well. But I think it's this. In Acts chapter 28, there's a story of Paul where he reaches down to pick something up, and a snake, a viper, latches onto him. It's the same word that we have here for wild animal. This word, when it's used generally, can talk about all wild animals, but only specifically about a snake. You can never use this Greek word for a dog or for a tiger or for a lion. You can either categorize all wild animals with this Greek word or you can talk of a snake. And Mark is telling us that there's another one who is in the midst of the snake who did not fall in the first temptation but was tempted for 40 days. 
And as we learn in Matthew and Luke, he's the champion. He's the victor. He was successful. Fourth, last parallel, there are angels there. But instead of angels guarding so that sinners don't gain eternal life, there's angels there ministering to and guarding and serving the one who will give eternal life to all of God's children. Okay, Ted, that's cute and potentially impressive, but so what? First, if you're new to the Bible, let me tell you why your life doesn't work. Let me tell you why my relationships don't work. Everything unravels from this one problem we have, which is that we no longer have the benediction of the Heavenly Father. Isolation comes from this. Suspicion comes from this. Loneliness comes from this. Guilt and shame come from this. Everything that is broken in our lives is a result of Adam and Eve. And the good news of the gospel is that if Christ can do something about um, the benediction of the Father for us so that we're no longer under his curse but under his favor, that will begin to have ripple effects everywhere else. We'll begin to live lives of joy. We'll begin to be related to one another again in love. We'll begin to see nature as something where we want to spread the kingdom of God there as well. That's the first thing. The second thing is this idea that everything that Jesus has in this text is given to us in the gospel. Everything that Jesus has in this text is given to us in the gospel. In the same way that everything Adam had and Adam and Eve and the shattering of the fall has been given to us. Through faith, everything Jesus has here is ours in the gospel. So I'm gonna just try and convey three gifts that are ours in the gospel through the work of Jesus. The benediction of the Father, the record of the Son, and the ministry of the Spirit. I'll go through them rather quickly. First, the benediction of the Father, verse 11. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. On an earthly plane and in physical matters, we can begin to understand how important it is for a child to have the blessing, the benediction, the approval, and the love of a dad. It's incredibly significant. God's word tells us Psychologists have studied and confirmed and our intuitions approve the idea that something radical is going on in the life of a child when the dad is not there to bless and to encourage and to love. Just Google, this week, Google a father's approval and you will be inundated with story after story, blog after blog, News article after news article, journal article after journal article about how significant it is for a young boy or a young girl or a grown man or a grown woman to have the approval of their dad. It's galactic. It's huge. One woman tells the story at age 35, she finally realized it's time for me to talk to my dad about this. And she lives in the same town as her dad. If you Google this, you might even find the same story. And she decides at age 35 to write her dad a letter and mail it across town. And there's one question on the letter. What must I do to gain your approval? Two days later, the doorbell rings. And with wobbly knee, shaky voice, and teary eyes, the dad is there telling her, I've always loved you, and I love you now. And her testimony is this. My life changed from that day forward. It was such a significant event in her life. 
how much more to have the benediction, the approval, the blessing, the shalom of our heavenly father. It's radical. It's where the gospel begins. Not only is it important to have it, but listen to the intimacy in hearing it. Go back to verse um, 11. And a voice came from heaven. In the Greek, it's really redundant. It, It draws out the second person pronoun over and over. You, it actually says you, you are my beloved son. With you, you I am well pleased. We're talking this weekend on a leader's retreat about how in the Trinity, how in this one God, but three persons, how they revolve around one another in mutual love and admiration and worship. And they tell one another over and over from eternity how great the other is. And they're vulnerable with one another. They're not, they're not afraid to show weakness and say, I really, I delight in you. I love you. I mean, the son is all about getting the father glory. And the father's all about getting the son glory. Same for the Holy Spirit. I had a friend, a roommate in college um, who had a very, very harsh father, very prominent pastor, which is scary for me, and uh, not the prominent part, but the pastor part. And uh, he had a very prominent uh, pastor for a dad and a very well-known man in his city. And uh, he had a very harsh relationship with his dad. And, and one night, he uh, came home from a long weekend um, with his family, and he was rather distraught, very upset. And um, he was just at, at wit's end. And, and um, I, did what, I did what I thought I should do, which I bought a case of really cheap beer and took him out to the woods of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and we hashed it out together. I've always had a pastor's heart. Um, And he made a discovery on the ride home that undid him. He said, I've never, ever heard my dad look me in the eye and say, you, I love you. And I've never, ever heard my dad say, you, I'm pleased with you. He'll preach a sermon on parenting and he'll tell 2,000 people to love their kids the way he loves me but he'll never come and whisper in my ear, I love you. He'll be at the barber shop and brag about his football playing son, but he'll never tell his son in a one-on-one conversation, I'm proud of you. Do you see this? Do you see who the audience is here? It's Jesus. Do you notice this? When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him and a voice came from heaven, you, You're my beloved son. You, I'm well pleased with you. The word beloved actually means dearest and only. God the Father is saying to God the Son, you're my favorite. Every one of my four children hears me regularly whisper in their ear, you're my favorite. Don't tell the others. I'm wild about you. Gentry, honestly, is the one favorite. Um, just joking. <laughs> don't, don't put God in a box here. The God that can be everywhere at all times, the God that can be intimately involved in every detail of your life can have a million favorites. I'm convinced I'm his favorite. You may be too, but I know that I am. That's the kind of love that God has for the son. And in the gospel, that's the kind of love he has for us. That he says, you're my dearest. 
You're my favorite. Listen, if you're new to the gospel, you got to understand this. The gospel is the story of God cupping your cheeks and looking you right in the eye and saying, I'm delighted with you. I love you. I couldn't be more excited about being your God. You're on my calendar. I want to whisper in your ear how much I care about you. I'm wild about you. I love loving you. Do you see how that could change everything in your life to grasp mentally and emotionally and spiritually that God wants to look you in the face and say, I'm really excited about having you as my favorite daughter. You'd have to say, absolutely. That would be a game changer for someone to look me in the eye and say that. But Ted, I have given in to the self-gratification temptation. I have given in to the self-promotion temptation. I have fallen to the self-serving temptation for years now. There is no way that I can possibly deserve that. And this is what the gospel says. Because Jesus earned it and switched with you on the cross, you have it. Of course we can't earn it on our own. We can only be given it. Of course we can't merit it. We can only receive it. That's where we are tonight. Let's move on to the record of the sun, and I'll have to go quickly on this. But the record of the sun to say, man, that would be great to have that, but I don't possibly have it on my own. How could I begin to be seen by that in that way by the loving Heavenly Father? Up until this point, it's AD 27. It's AD 27. It's no longer BC, it's now AD. And Jesus is 30 years old. And Hebrews 4 tells us that at this point in his life, he's been tempted in every way as you and I, and yet without sin. He was two and not terrible. He was a teenage boy who didn't give in to self-gratification. He was a 25-year-old man who did not give in to self-service, establishing his kingdom instead of God's kingdom. He was tempted in every way you and I have been tempted, and he did not sin. Not only that, look at this. Let's, Let's get into this idea that Jesus wanted to be baptized by John, and Matthew Matthew records that John says, no way. I've just told them that my baptism is a symbol for your baptism, that my baptism is with water, and it's a sacramental symbol that's pointing to their need to be baptized by you internally. You should baptize me. This is what Jesus says. He says, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. That somehow, some way, if Jesus is not baptized by John the Baptist, he fails to be righteous for you and me. He fails to be obedient for you and I. He fails to gain the benediction of the Father. And I, I can't imagine what's going on here, but it's got to be something about the humility of the association of being with broken, sinful people that even in his baptism, he's identifying with us in our need as broken human beings. And yet, somehow, Without sin. And isn't it interesting? It is not after 40 days of fighting Satan where God the Father says, Now that is the Son in which I'm well pleased. It's after the humility of his baptism. A man coming from nowhere, Galilee, and God rends the heavens with his voice and says, Now that is good. That's what I wanted. That's very good. That is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then, and then the Spirit 
leads him, forcefully leads him into the wilderness. And he goes through 40 days of temptation. And if you combine Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, you, you find that for 40 days, Jesus goes without food in a dry and desperate place. And Luke and Mark talk about him being tempted the entire time by Satan and his subordinate demons. And then Matthew talks about this culminating climactic event where Satan gives one last try at causing Jesus to sin. You can go read those yourself to learn about them. But what we're being taught there by Matthew is that where you and I crumble at stage one of temptation, (laughs) Satan kept ratcheting it up more and more and more and stronger and heavier and worse and worse. And Jesus, without food and drink and being desperately hungry, stands at the end as the champion the righteous one who can now go to the cross and die for the unrighteous. Not only do we have the benediction of the Father in the gospel, we have it because Christ has given us his record in the cross that we do not stand as those who fall to level one temptation. We stand with the record of Christ who did not fall after 40 straight days. But not only that, we have the ministry of the Spirit. We have the ministry of the Spirit. Verse 10, immediately Jesus saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. In the Greek language, it actually says, and the Spirit descending into him like a dove. In verse 12, not only is Jesus filled with the Spirit, he's being led by the Spirit. The Spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness. And then in verse 13, angels were ministering to him in the same way that Satan has legions of subordinate demons. The Holy Spirit has legions of supporting angels who fight for God's children. We don't have a lot of time to go through this really well, but I want you to think of the idea of the ministry of defense. I want you to think about the idea of the ministry of defense. We have a secretary of defense in the United States, but in a lot of countries in Europe, they have the minister of defense and the ministry of defense. And the minister of defense is what is similar to our secretary of defense, which is one person. The minister of defense has at their disposal all the resources of the country, including the ministry of defense, in order to defend the people of that country. This is what this passage is teaching us. That now, as God's sons and daughters, every resource available to God himself will be used in the defense of us. I mean, think about this from our city Bible reading this week in Matthew 26. We find here that the entire time that Jesus is being tempted for 40 days. He's being served over and over and over and stood up and given a way out and supported with scripture and given community with these angels. And then in Matthew chapter 26, they come to arrest Jesus and Peter takes out his sword and lops off Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, put your sword back. Do you not know that I could have 12 legions of angels to come and defend me. That Jesus goes without the angels at the crucifixion so that you and I can have the angels as broken sinners. Every part about his life is beautiful. And John's promise from last week is this promise 
that in the same way he was baptizing, immersing, plunging them into the Jordan River, that Jesus would come and one day immerse and plunge and fill us with his spirit to lead us into a Christ-like life. And the ministry of the spirit is this. Jeff Johnson says this beautifully, that the Holy Spirit will do in us what Christ has done for us that the Holy Spirit will do in us what Christ has done for us, that the beautiful life of Christ is now ours through the power of the Spirit and all of the resources available to him by God's power. So to be human again, to not turn on one another, to not turn on ourselves, to not turn in rebellion towards God, to not be at odds with nature, that this is all the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. One concluding idea. This uh, Monday night, um, Maddie and Riley and Braden, Maddie is seven, girl, Riley is six, girl, Braden, four, boy. They're playing basketball. They've seen all of the high school musicals about 747 times. And, and being um, under the spell of high school musical, uh, they, were, they were scripting out for at least 10 minutes how they were going to do this scene where, Matt, where, where one of them was going to dribble the basketball and shoot at the buzzer's sound in order to win the game for the entire school. And so what they would do is they said, Matt, I said, now first I'm going to go and be the basketball player and you're going to sit on the side and you're going to cheer for me when I win the game for our school. She's seven and athletic, no problem. Six foot goal, instant layup. And the crowd goes wild. They dote on her, they rejoice in her, they applaud her, almost worship her. And then it's Braden's turn. And he's a good dribbler, but that little guy doesn't quite have the strength to get the ball up over the rim. He's got this problem where he thinks if I stand right under the basket, I'm going to improve my odds of making a basket. And so time after time, he's throwing the ball up there, it's hitting the rim, and it's coming down and smacking him in the face. And Sarai says, Braden, sit down. I'll take a turn. Riley has plenty of strength, but at this point, she has not caught up to her sister in athleticism. She's chucking it over the fence. I mean, she, it's out there. And both of them, after I'm thinking a good five minutes, neither one of them have made a basket. And they're frustrated, and they're angry, and they're wounded, and they're hurt, and they're bickering with each other. And they're bickering with me. And they're bickering with Maddie. And Maddie declares, all right, I am going to play for Brayden. No lie. Brayden comes and sits right next to me. Maddie beautifully drives the lane, shoots a layup, makes the layup, and Brayden erupts in applause, jumping up and down with delight, saying, I made a basket. I made a basket. I won the game. I'm the champion. And I pull him into my lap and I whisper, I'm so proud of you. I'm delighted in you. This is really good stuff. I'm so glad you did that. It's the gospel. And Jesus says, I'm going to play for you. And I'm going to live and play beautifully for you. And our responsibility is to sit here and worship and cheer with delight at the beauty of his game that is vicariously given to us at the cross. Maddie says, okay, now 
I'm going to play for Riley. And I don't know developmentally if this is a good sign or a bad sign, but Riley refused to let Maddie play for her. Her pride was bubbling up inside of her. Now, this could be a good developmental sign that she wants to do it herself. I have no idea, but let me just tell you what that's a picture of. You and I in stubborn rebellion, refusing to rejoice in the life that Christ has lived for us and the death that he has died for us and the promise of his Holy Spirit in us. If you're new to the church, the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians can rejoice in the life that Jesus has lived for us and non-Christians are really frustrated by the fact that they need someone else to live for them, that they need someone else to gain the approval of the Father for them, that they need someone else to empower them. Come and join me and repent tonight, all of us, for our rebellion, for our pride, and for our stubbornness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the life that you live for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the generosity of your benediction to sinners saved by grace. Holy Spirit, we beg that you would give us eyes to see all that you are doing in us and through us and among us that we might believe, rejoice, and follow. In your name we pray, amen.